and rode the 90 minutes from Milwaukee to Chicago. Uh, I was doing this to see a girl that I hadn't seen for about a year. And when I arrived at her house, well, I knocked on the door and, and nobody answered. And uh, so I st- sat on the step for a while and I paced in the driveway for a while and an hour went by. And uh, as the second hour went by, I thought, well, I wonder if this is some sort of joke and maybe I should just be on my way. Um, Eventually, uh, Amy's parents arrived to find me sitting around in their driveway, and her mother straight away went into the house to find that Amy was sleeping. So, well, what was I looking for? I, I didn't know, but I knew, you know? And it took a little effort. And, uh, well, we've been married for almost 34 years. In uh, this passage, we're told what kind of Uh, worshipers God is looking for. In verse 23, it says, they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. He wants worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So my question for us today is, what does it look like when God seeks these worshipers? Um, One of the great questions of John's Gospel, and it kind of gets lost in translation, is, what do you seek? That is to say, what do you want? The first words that Jesus speaks in John's Gospel are, What do you want? What are you looking for? After his resurrection, Jesus' first words to Mary as she clings to him are, Don't cling to me. What do you want? That is to say, What do you seek? The disciples, we're told in this story, come back and they find him talking to a woman and they don't ask, What do you want? But I want to say that we're being told what the Father wants and how he goes about getting what he wants. So the first thing I want us to observe is that when the Father seeks you, Jesus initiates a conversation. In verses 4 to 9, we're told about a woman who's at a well, and the woman had come to draw water, and Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? Now the disciples are off the stage, verse 8 tells us, and the Samaritan woman replies, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman, how can you ask for me for a drink? Because they don't talk to one another, they don't associate with one another. It doesn't seem like a big deal to us maybe, but I was um, preparing for, I guess we call it a Muslim mission a few weeks ago, and I was being sort of trained, my, my team was being trained, and how you interact with the people that you're going to meet. And one thing they made very clear is, well, don't greet women. And I said, now hang on a second, I used to live in Carlingford, and if somebody's walking down the street, uh, and I'm walking past, I say hello. That's, I thought, just basic courtesy in the suburbs, not so much in the city, but in the suburbs, isn't it? And they said, no, do not greet the woman. I said, well, what if I'm in a conversation and I'm introduced to one? And, and they said, well, just do that. No more than that. Um, don't say anything. Don't look at them. They want to, as it were, be seen as ghosts that pass through. And you don't engage with them. So it's kind of a big deal that Jesus is talking to this woman. But the fact is, there's a thicker line here that's being drawn than gender. Um, the conversation is... You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Why are you talking to me? Because this woman and Jesus both knew the history of this relationship. In 128 B.C., the Jews had destroyed their place of worship, their house of worship on the mountain. And uh, ever since then, things just got increasingly worse. And so it is in the world that we inhabit today. The tensions that mark um, uh, different religious and ethnic uh, divisions. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with the story of Asia Bibi. In uh, 
2010, Azia Bibli was at a well in Pakistan, and she drew water from that well, and she shared it with a woman who was at the well. But very quickly, a crowd gathered. She was accused of polluting the well because as a Christian, she should not have been drinking it. And then giving it to these Muslim women was deemed a fatal error. They said, you need to convert to Islam because you've polluted our well. When she refused, she was arrested and straight away put on death row. This is 2010. She's been in the judicial system ever since. And today nobody knows where she is. To meet at a well and have a conversation like this is a very serious matter. But when the Father seeks you, Jesus initiates a conversation. The next thing I think we're supposed to observe here is that when the Father seeks you, Jesus offers hope. Verses 10 to 15, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. If there's a barrier between Jews and Samaritans that interferes with that conversation, so here in Jesus' offering of hope, there's another barrier, and it's the barrier of understanding. Jesus is talking about living water, and it clearly communicates nothing to her. But it does point to a better future, and that she hears. That's what hope means, to believe that there can be a better future. And this woman is running low on hope. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Well, Jesus very quickly indicates that he's talking about the Spirit. So what we're seeing here is that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are working together in him drawing us to himself, in the Father seeking what he wants. We also see in passing, I guess, that it's not merely about making life easier. This woman hears Jesus at a very mundane level. I won't have to keep coming to the well. That would be a great thing. Jesus says, no, we're talking about something more profound, something deeper than that, something that matters much more than that. He's offering her hope, hope which is life, because the Spirit indwells. What's your hope quotient looking like this morning? In this story, the Father and the Son are offering hope. Third thing to observe here is that when the Father seeks you, Jesus offers forgiveness. There's another barrier in this story that Jesus has to get over. It's the barrier of sin. The barrier of understanding gives way to the barrier of sin because we need forgiveness. You see, judgment is coming. And so forgiveness has to be dealt with. Forgiveness can be a very tricky thing. Sometimes we don't want someone to be forgiven. Let me give an example of this. Uh, When I was in England, I was uh, um, studying there, and uh, when the people at my church found that my father was coming, they asked him if he'd like to come and preach a sermon. So uh, I communicated that to my father, and he said, yeah, he'd like to do that. And he preached on 
the story of Joseph and his brothers. And it was a very uh, uh, direct sermon about forgiveness. And as I heard that, a bit of resentment welled up in me. Because as far as I could recall, my father had never asked for forgiveness for those things that he had done. Had I forgiven my father for those things that I held against him? Until that moment, I probably wouldn't have been so aware of this in myself, that I had this attitude toward him. But in that moment, it kind of crystallized it for me. What right does he have to talk about forgiveness? After he finished preaching, one of the people that I'd come to really appreciate, and in a sense admire in this church, he was an elderly man, uh, came up to him, and he said, that sermon for me was really difficult and on target because there's a man that I need to forgive and I just can't find myself doing that. And so he had, in that moment, sort of entered into that forgiveness. So there I was, sort of rebuked as I overheard this conversation. Who am I to not forgive if God is willing to forgive, if the Scriptures are calling us to forgive? Forgiveness can be a very tricky thing. The other thing that this woman has to deal with is the reality of, I think, a fear and self-loathing. She's been um, living this manner of life. So Jesus says, the fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. How many times will we ask for forgiveness? In fact, it sort of explains why the woman's at the well. You know, we're told that in the middle of the day, she's at the well all by herself. I had a student once, uh, this is going back a while, who was from India. And I was teaching a class on John, and when we got to this story, he immediately resonated with the story. He identified what was going on here in a way that I never could. Because in his society, you had this, all these orders of people. And to go to the well in the middle of the day in India, you're out there. You're virtually untouchable. People don't want you around, and you don't want to be around people. And this woman has had this manner of life so that she goes to the well by herself. Now, the text doesn't answer so many of the questions that I bring to it. I want to know, why is she by herself? She's been married five, six times. She's, you know, living this world. Where are her children? Maybe her husbands have thrown her aside because of her inability to produce children. Maybe she's had children, but the husbands won't let those children associate with her because of the kind of person he is. We don't know. All we know is that she has been tossed aside by her society, by her own village, by her own people. And what sort of emotions does she carry with her every moment of every day as she contemplates who she is? What sort of fear is at work within her? There's no safety net available to this woman? How does she process life? And how many times do we ask for forgiveness? The third time, the fourth time, the fifth time we commit that same sin. And she's now with her sixth man. Things are just getting worse. She's not even married to this one. Where will this end? It's obvious, isn't it, that she's looking for something, that she needs to fill something within her, and she's not finding it. Will she ever find it. And I would say, it's also perfectly obvious that what she needs is man number seven. In fact, she says, Jesus says, go call your husband. 
And as we get to the end of the chapter, we find that she never does call her husband. Instead, she calls her entire village. She leaves her jar behind. Why does John want us to know that she leaves her jar behind to go to the village? Well, two chapters ago, there was a wedding. And the whole story was about these jars. Jars that were filled with water, which became wine. And at this wedding, Jesus was confused with the groom. The groom didn't provide this incredible wine. Jesus did. Jesus was confused with the groom in that story. So my fourth and final point here is that when the Father seeks you, Jesus enlarges the bride of Christ. What's the barrier to this? Well, now it's the barrier of religious identity. Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. There's this religious issue that stands behind the ethnic issues and all the tensions. And it's driving them apart. But Jesus is being presented to us as enlarging the bride of Christ. And look at the woman we're talking about. This is a woman I would not let my son marry. I wouldn't want her at my table. We used to have a a ministry back in Central Sydney days called Ezekiel. It was to deal with uh, homeless men. And one day we had a, a sort of a family meal with these homeless people. And it's probably the most unpleasant experience I've ever had. The man who sat at our table had his finger in his nose the entire time we ate this meal. Um, he talked about how he couldn't see his child. And so he's angry with the church. So it's hard to get to Christian things, but he's angry with the church. Why couldn't he see his child? Well, he had had sexual relations with a um, mentally retarded woman who was in the care of the church. And they said, you can't come back. Well, of course they did. Who wants to be around a person like that? This is the sort of woman I would not want at my table. But the whole point here is that God seeks. And this includes a woman like this. This includes people like her. And to put this as offensively as possible, Jesus' marriage includes this woman. It's often pointed out that the story that we're looking at contains almost a stereotypical biblical scene. In the stories of Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, well, their marriage works out something like this. They go on a long journey. They meet a woman at a well. They help this woman out. They stay in, end up getting married. What we're seeing is Jesus being identified as a groom. And I'm not making that up because in chapter 2, Jesus was, in a sense, confused with the groom, the one who provides the wine at the wedding. In chapter 3, John the Baptist stands back and says, Hang on a second, I'm not the groom, I'm the best man. The best man comes to celebrate with the groom. So Jesus is clearly the groom that John the Baptist is pointing to. So we get to the end of John 3, and the only question left is, Well, who's the bride? And then we meet a woman at a well who's been married five times and is now living with man number six. And what she needs is man number seven. This is a picture that John in the book of Revelation will develop further as he speaks of the bride and the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19.
What we're saying then is that this woman has been drawn into the bride of Christ. Now don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying became the wife of Jesus, as though Jesus was married. But the bride of Christ expands to take in a woman like this. And if it takes in a woman like this, there's just a smidgen of hope for us, isn't there? And there's an offer of forgiveness for us. If God is this gracious, maybe we can get in by a back door. God is seeking people who will acknowledge Him, who will honor Him, who will love Him, and He sends His Son to work by His Spirit to bring this salvation to us. And there's part of me that wants to resist this. But to resist this promise, to say that this woman is unworthy, is to join with all those religious leaders in Jesus' day who took offense at His lavish grace and mercy. She is unworthy. And so are we. But Jesus has come for us. So in conclusion, let me just point this out. Jesus, the, the chapter's not really teaching us, come to Jesus. It's saying Jesus has come to you. And he will continue all the way to the cross because that's the way that God gets what he wants. So the question, I guess, is how will you respond? Jesus is talking to you. Jesus is offering hope. Do you need hope? Jesus is offering forgiveness. Do you need forgiveness? Jesus is offering an eternal relationship with the living God. Do you need hope, forgiveness, and a renewed relationship with God? God is seeking you today. Does what you want align with what God wants in this moment? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your love, your grace, your mercy, you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you seek those who are lost, and that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to seek and save those who are lost. So we pray that you would gather us in, that today you would comfort those with hope who need it, that you would hold out forgiveness to those who need that. And that's every one of us. So we pray that your hope and forgiveness would work its way into our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.